This is Spotlight on France. I'm Sarah Elzis. And I'm Alison Hurd. Coming up this week, a former war correspondent who was held hostage by jihadists in Syria talks to us about the controversial issue of French jihadi fighters and their families returning to France. And we report on a Facebook group that shows there's more individual solidarity in France than you might think. But first, 2,686, that's how many people are on the list to run for France's 79 seats in the European Parliament in an election which is coming up on May the 26th. The candidate lists have just been published and 34 different groups are in the running. That's a lot of groups. That is mind-boggling, Sarah. Already polling stations, especially in this cramped city we live in, are tearing their hair out over how to get all those 34 billboards on the pavements. This is a record number. Um, You imagine then maybe it reflects more interest in these parliamentary elections, these European elections? Polls suggest not. They're expecting that round about 40% of people will actually vote. That's what it's been like over the last few years. The record number of lists probably says more about the splintering of politics in general. There are a couple of lists led by the Yellow Vest activists. That's the big new thing, isn't it, this time around. But then again, many Yellow Vest supporters are not keen at all at the idea of joining any organised political system. It's a pretty anti-establishment. There are two far-right identitarian lists with only very thinly veiled anti-Islam platforms. There's a brand new Union of French Muslim Democrats list. There's a pirate party, a royalist list. There's an animal rights list. Lots and lots to choose from. Campaigns, of course, aren't cheap. And the French uh, government has campaign financing. Is I guess the government's footing the bill for all of this? Well, the state will reimburse you for up to 9 million euros of campaign costs if you get more than 3% of the vote. It's clear that most of these small parties are not going to get that. So they're having to find ways of saving money Printing out enough ballot papers to put into all the polling stations across France will cost you around 200,000 euros. So some parties are actually asking potential voters to print out their own ballot papers online. The big players, uh, where's the president's party, Emmanuel Macron's party and all this? Yeah, well, the LREM party is on a list called Renaissance, along with two other centre-right parties. Uh, Renaissance has just published its manifesto, and perhaps surprisingly, it's put the emphasis really on the environment. It's surprisingly, of course, because Macron's been accused of neglecting the environment during the great debate and, and perhaps trying to catch up here with voters. Yeah, and he needs to broaden his support base if he's going to do well, so maybe reaching out more to green voters. They're also trying to get left-leaning voters on board with measures like increased taxes on tech giants. So the idea is turning towards the left, not so much on the right. Of course, these are centrist parties, but aiming towards the left. That would seem to be their strategy, because if they're going to beat off the far-right National Rally Party, which is their main rival. At the moment, uh, the LREM is neck and neck with the National Rally Party. And you may remember in 2014, at the last European elections, the National Front, as it was called at that time, came out on top with nearly 25% of the vote. Macron can't afford to let that happen again this time, all the more so because his own credibility as president is in the balance. It relies on him being strong on the European stage. And so for that, his party needs to do well in this election. If not, as a member of the National Rally said, he should resign.
This week on Tuesday was the start of the trial of France Telecom over a string of employee suicides in 2008 and 2009, 35 in fact, though several others tried and, and failed. It's the first of its kind and high-level executives are accused of moral harassment. Moral harassment, yeah, it's a, a legal term here in France and they're accused of, of inducing people to quit during a massive restructuring that started in 2005. France Telecom, today known as Orange, was state-owned until 2004 and then after privatization came a lot of technological changes, the arrival of mobile phone technology, competition in that sector. There was mounting huge pressure to change the way France Telecom was doing business at the time. And the company introduced a plan to cut 22,000 of its 122,000 workforce in three years. This all through voluntary departures. So no redundancies. No right. official plan to fire anyone. So the CEO at the time, Didier Lombard, is accused of encouraging a culture of pressuring people to quit by constantly relocating them and assigning them to meaningless jobs. And it was difficult, wasn't it, Sarah, for workers to deal with that level of upheaval and uncertainty because they were used to working in the public sector. Indeed, this was a recently privatized company. Most of these were skilled technicians or engineers used to good working conditions, benefits, job stability. So within a few years, dozens of employees tried to kill themselves. Several of those who succeeded left notes behind pointing to their work conditions as the culprit. Lombard stepped down in 2010 following criticism of management's handling of what became known as the crisis of suicides at France Telecom. And this week in court on Tuesday, Lombard continued what he's continuously said for the last 10 years, that this was a kind of copycat effect and that the company is not at all to blame for these suicides. Yeah. Some people were very shocked uh, by that attitude. France Telecom is not the only once public company, is it, to be privatized in France? So is this happening elsewhere? Well, so suicides are happening in other sectors. Most recently, we've heard reporting on police suicides. Um, and indeed, privatization, especially in France, does bring this kind of clash in work cultures. Employees who are used to regular promotions, secure jobs, they're faced with managers imposing a kind of private company management style. It's pretty shocking. France Telecom is kind of a rare intersection of a recently privatized company at the time, where the sector got open to competition also around that time in the midst of a technological revolution. But you can also think of it as a case study. I mean, issues of workplace health are growing in France, you can argue worldwide as well as businesses become more and more competitive. And of course, there's government pressure to reduce unemployment, which also is pushing companies to keep employees even if they are unhappy. So how the court rules on this case will be telling. The bells, the bells, they were ringing out on French TV this week, Sarah. They're sheep bells, and the kids there were protesting over one of their primary school classes threatened with closure. I guess it's nice to hear that the kids love their school that much. Isn't it just? This was Tuesday, and it was in a village in the Alps. Fifteen sheep were registered to boost numbers at the school, which will lose a class in September because there are not enough human students. The sheep had birth certificates with names like Barbet. Bar. <laughs> just love that, just love it. Now the protesters are worried about class sizes because the remaining classes will go from 24 to 26 students each. Well that doesn't seem like that big a deal, only two more students in each no, class. No, but the stunt very effectively drew attention to a bigger concern in France about schools in low populated rural areas that they will be gradually phased out and consolidated. People don't seem to believe Macron's promise that there will be no school closure during the rest of his term. The devil is in the detail. Let's step back in time. 
But not that long ago. Two years ago this week, Emmanuel Macron was elected as the eighth president of the fifth French Republic in a landslide, the youngest president ever, with a plan to rejuvenate the French economy and revolutionize politics. Two years later, he's facing plummeting approval ratings and struggling to convince ordinary French people that he has their best interests at heart. Turns out that this is a thing, the two-year curse. French presidents two years in have rarely been faring well. Michael Fitzpatrick has been looking into this. So, Michael, what is this two-year curse? François Mitterrand, Jacques Chirac, Nicolas Sarkozy and François Hollande were all at the bottom of their popularity ratings as they got to the day on which they blew out that second candle in the Elysee Palace. Two, of course, out of a five-year term. Exactly. And I suppose it's explained by most commentators by sort of a, you get a honeymoon period when everybody likes the new president simply because he's new and then suddenly they begin to wake up and uh, they get less and less uh, happy. In each of the four cases that I've mentioned, uh, it's Mitterrand, Chirac, Sarkozy and Hollande, they never managed to climb back up that slippery slope of public approval. So Macron's facing this two years in. He had a very strong first year. He's going the same pattern? I'm afraid so. And he probably doesn't deserve it. Uh, You know, uh, unemployment in France is down nearly one point over his two years. Economic growth is slow but stable, and that's not his fault. The the world isn't doing particularly well at the moment. The French public debt has been slimmed down considerably, despite recent handouts. And we're promised that we're all going to pay less tax. So he's doing quite well, in fact. He's doing well, though he's promised much more, which is maybe where he's running into a problem here. Well, he may have run into the problem with his decision to lower wealth tax and generalise the social charge. These were two things which earned him the tag of president of the rich. Uh, He has stuck to his guns on the first of those, the wealth tax. He says it's necessary to give those who have money control of that money so they can invested in the French economy. That's not made him very popular with, notably, the Yellow Vest protesters. So can Macron now beat the odds? His two-year curse, we're at two years in, he has three more years. Uh, things are not looking great, but Le Figaro, the right-wing newspaper, in its political analysis pages, says the recent press conference in which President Macron looked back over his two years and forward for the remaining three was a clear indication that he's conscious of this two-year problem and that he's tried to give the French... Uh, people an indication that he does not intend to simply be a resident in the presidential Elysee Palace, but he's going to be president of France for the remaining three years and continue to drive things forward. Thanks there to Michael Fitzpatrick. France, like several other countries in Europe, is divided over how to deal with people who left to fight with jihadists in Syria. Now that the Islamic State armed group is officially beaten, its fighters are being held captive. The latest official figures published by the Centre for Analysis of Terrorism show that more than 350 French nationals are being held by Kurdish forces in Syria, 52 men, 90 women and 210 children. The majority of those children are under the age of five. Several of the children have already returned to France, so the government's doing this on a case-by-case basis. A few days ago, the grandparents of two of these children that are being detained with their jihadist mother in a Kurdish camp in Syria filed a lawsuit at the 
the European Court of Human Rights to get France to repatriate them. Yet, public opinion in France seems to be quite against repatriating jihadists or even their kids. I reached out to Nicolas Ena, a former war correspondent who was taken hostage by jihadists in Syria in 2013. He now works in counterterrorism and de-radicalization in French prisons, so he has an interesting and informed perspective on France's obligation towards these children. I find it totally immoral to blame children. Who are below the age of five for the mistakes of their parents? If we keep these children in the miserable conditions they currently live in, we just lose our moral standards, and we need moral standard to fight terrorism, because the terrorists are very keen to pretend that they defend the morality, and we are on the side of the vice. Lawyers for these children's grandparents have said the children run the risk of becoming radicalized if they stay over there. What do you think? Obviously, if we leave them in the miserable conditions they live in in, in these camps and surrounded with actual terrorists and very radical persons, for sure, we will make it even more difficult to、uh, reintegrate them into our society. What is your position on repatriating jihadi brides and jihadi fighters themselves? I do not make any distinctions between male fighters or brides. For me, as soon as you are adult, you are exactly as responsible of your deeds and of what you have done. So basically, I consider that adults should be repatriated because it is in their home countries. That they can be handled in the best possible way. These people are obviously dangerous. Obviously, it will be also costly to handle them. There will be needs for trials afterwards, a detention that will be also expensive, and at the end of their detention, there will be a need for reinsertion and also、uh, intelligence monitoring. All this is also expensive, and potentially dangerous because maybe some of them will go back to terrorism. But this being said, I still consider it is the best decision to take. Because as long as they are in the Middle East, these persons are even greater dangers to our countries. Public opinion is not necessarily with you on that one, is it? Recent opinion polls showed that around two thirds of the French were not even in favour of taking back the children of jihadis, let alone the fighters themselves. So. How can you say it would be less dangerous for France to take them back and try them here in France than it would be to leave them in the Middle East? Well, the public opinion is mostly disinformed by politicians who are playing with fears, who are unwilling to face their responsibilities, and accept what the experts are saying that it is the best possible solution. If you look at the level of security of the detention facilities in the Middle East, I do not feel comfortable knowing that some very dangerous French terrorists are currently being detained by people who are well, not professional fighters. The Kurdish militia, the FDS, who are currently manning these camps, they have done a very good job to fight ISIS, but it's not a long-term policy. It's also very unfair 
for us Westerners to rely on partners to prosecute and keep for a long run jihadists and radicals that we contributed to produce ourselves. These people were not radicalized in the Middle East, they were not radicalized in Syria, Iraq. They have been radicalized in our home countries. Nicolas, you were held for uh, around 10 months in Syria by Islamic State armed group fighters. That was back in 2013-2014. Uh, what have you brought from that experience, which is now helping you with de-radicalization? I learned an intimate knowledge of their state of mind. I was embedded, involuntarily, but I was embedded with them during these 10 months. That helped me to understand them, that helps me also to assess them. It's not only a question of language. It's not the fact that, uh, well, you have read the Quran or you know the doctrines. No, it's also about the small details that will make you understand why someone reacts as he does. You identified your captor as Mehdi Nemush, a French jihadist who was accused of murdering four people in the Jewish Museum in Brussels in May 2014. You were badly treated by him. Despite that, you still believe that people like him deserve due process here in France? Of course they do. It was essential for me to be able to witness this trial and I want to witness as many trials of my former captors as possible because it helps me and I have the feeling that I also help the justice and this is what I want to do. It's also essential that these terrorists get fair trials because a terrorist will always pretend that he is the victim of a racist policy that is being implemented by an Islamophobic state or whatever. No, it's wrong. They deserve a defense. They deserve to have a fair trials with all their rights so that we prevent them from posing as victims because we are the victims, not them. That was Nicola Enna. So now we head into the land of Facebook, not the friendliest of planets these days. But a huge French community on Facebook is showing that it's not all fake news, bots and trolls. Indeed, the Wanted Community, as it's called, counts a million members across several Facebook groups that are linked mostly to French cities. People there exchange tips, give advice, and generally act with goodwill and good cheer towards each other. And they've expanded offline as well. The founders of the community opened a cafe in Bordeaux last year, and I went to check it out. The Wanted Cafe is in a gentrifying neighborhood of Bordeaux, near the city's central market. The restaurant serves food and drinks, but also a good dose of solidarity. As customers pay for their meals, the server offers a frequent visitor card. The tenth meal at the cafe will give a free meal to someone, a suspended meal. There are also suspended cups of coffee. You can pay for a coffee that someone can later come and order. And anyone is welcome here, even homeless people who might get turned away elsewhere. The cafe also donates 2% of its revenue to a local aid group. So the food, you know, is really great. Sixteen Perucel sits in the cafe with her computer. She's scrolling through the wanted Facebook groups, the digital origins of this physical space. 
Wanted is a solidarity and mutual aid community. And Perusel joined the Wanted Paris group two years ago as a newly arrived Parisian looking for tips on the city. When she started helping refugees, she posted requests for donations and volunteers. And lots of people answer like, okay, I have these, I have these, where can I give you that? Today, Perusel is one of Wanted's three employees based here in Bordeaux, the hometown of the three co-founders. As the new community leader, Perusel works with 80 or so volunteer moderators who manage two million interactions a month across 80 groups, the largest of which is in Paris. And there's a range of requests on these groups, people looking for places to live, searching for lost items, or just asking for advice. This one is one guy, he said that he has a lot of time because he will do the Ramadan and uh, he wants to be volunteer. So a lot of reaction, like 55 comments and a lot of people uh, giving association or looking for volunteers. Uh, this one is a donation for cat food. This one was for a refugee looking for if someone can host him. Uh, this one, the girl, uh, she's just asking for advice for a good electronic reader. 27 comments. Uh, here it's on the community of Marseille. Someone stole a wheelchair in the street, so it means that the disabled woman was stuck in her apartment. So it's a friend of her who posted a message on the group. So uh, 42 comments. So people are saying this is this is shameful, this yeah, is whatever. And absolutely. Then, okay. But we have also like, hey, I saw the wheelchair in the street at this place. So finally, in one day, they, they succeeded to find the wheelchair again. That's the magic of the network. Perusel says moderators work to keep promotions out of the groups. And they jump in when comments get too nasty, usually by reaching out to people directly. It's just like a personal message from one of our moderators, like, you know, what you say is not respectful, so I would ask to uh, remove your comments, and please feel free to post again, but respect the other. And most of the time, they just calm down and understand. And that's the tone. Let's all get along. There's also a lot of humor. Moderators are encouraged to keep things light. And the groups are full of jokes. There's a signature wanted post, a request for photo editing. Someone posts a headshot or a family photo and asks for the background to be cleaned up or someone to be photoshopped out of the image. And members start playing around, adding in people, superimposing heads. Co-founder Jérémy Ballarin says at first they wondered if they shouldn't ban this kind of post. But members said no, leave them. They're hilarious. It's interesting to see the many different ways people use wanted. Some just come to laugh. And among the dozens, sometimes hundreds of comments and silly modifications of these editing requests, the original photo always gets properly edited by someone, which for Ballarin shows the solidarity aspect of this community. There are people who take the photo, load it into Photoshop and do the edits. That's someone who could have been doing something completely different during that time. And that's the interesting part of these communities. These are random acts of kindness, ranging from the very big to the very small. But when Ballarin and his two friends started the very first group, Wanted Paris, in 2011, they had different goals. They were three friends from Bordeaux who just moved to the capital. We didn't have any networks in Paris. We didn't know what bars to go to. We didn't know where to find roommates. So we created a group and invited people from our personal networks, who knew Paris, to exchange advice. The initial group of about 600 grew quickly. Friends, friends of friends, everyone invited others. By 2013, two years later, there were already thousands of members. 
Balaran says one post in particular showed them that they really needed to start managing the group. One person did a Facebook Live in which she said she wanted to kill herself. That really struck us, of course. And we told ourselves, OK, people are looking for much more than recommendations or good deals from this group. Group members alerted the administrators about the video. They reached out to the person who said that many members had also reached out via private message. The crisis was averted. But it made the founders aware there was a shift in how people were using Wanted. Then came the 2015 terrorist attacks in Paris, and members used the groups to look for victims to offer help. Media stories highlighted Wanted's role in helping Parisians during the attacks, which drew even more members. This growth and the direction the group was taking was unexpected and surprising, but Ballarin says they embraced it. There were plenty of other paths to take. We could have made different decisions. We could have created a separate group called Wanted Solidarity. But we said no. We have to make it so people with connections and abilities can help others. They opened other groups in other cities, and what started out as a personal project started to change. They wanted to quit their jobs, dedicate themselves to managing the community full-time. Balaran was working as a communications consultant. One of the other founders was a lawyer, the other a cafe manager. Early on, they had decided not to allow advertising on the wanted community, so they had to find another way to make money. They went through different ideas and settled on opening a restaurant. Since many interactions in the online community ended up in physical meetings, why not create a physical space for all different kinds of people to meet? And this being France, the best way to gather people is around food. That's how they came to open the Wanted Cafe here in Bordeaux. And around the time the cafe opened, Facebook came calling. At the end of 2018, the Wanted community received a million-dollar grant from Facebook, which was looking to shift its focus to groups. That solidified the founders' decisions to quit their jobs. They hired staff and hoped to open another Wanted cafe in Paris, as well as other mixed-use sites. Balaran says they've tapped into a need in France for individual solidarity. We're in a country with a real sense of community and public service. That's very French. The idea that the community must be there for others. But the community in France is often found through institutions, aid groups and the government. Through the Facebook group, people are finding individual connections. People are saying we have to help others, not through institutions, not through social services. We need to be there for others, full stop. We're used to going through the state, the welfare state. Maybe now people want to skip that and just help each other. That's it for this week. Spotlight on France is a podcast from the English service of Radio France International. And this episode was mixed by Erwan Rome. If you like what you hear, tell us about it. Our email address is spotlight.france at rfi.fr. And even better, find Spotlight on France on Apple Podcasts and rate and review us. It helps people find us. You can subscribe to the show there or in your favorite podcast platform. I'm Sarah Elzis. I'm Alison Hurd. See you next week. Bye. Bye.